All right, Jesse, the Mother's Day murder was wild. What's the story this week? A wealthy art appraiser and his charismatic wife of a decade are out for a midnight drive when the unthinkable occurs. Their vehicle plummets 800 feet down a mountain, leaving one partner dead and the other clinging for dear life to the cliffside. It's a shocking tragedy made more so when the authorities begin to suspect that it was no accident at all. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad ideas, bad partners, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. I think we probably will put out a story or a post about it. We do have a new sticker, guys. So remember, if you'd like to snag any of our super cool and cute little stickers, just screenshot your review that you've left us or update your review if you want a new sticker and send us a screenshot and we will send you a sticker of your choosing. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can check out our patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of our Patreon, we are so excited, as always this week, to welcome and shout out a new set of lovely patrons. Welcome to Shannon L. and Adeline, Brandy G. and Heather C., Claudia L. and Laura D., Sophia H. and Ricky N., and last but not least, Michelle M. And we will be seeing some of you guys tomorrow night for the uh, Thirsty Third Thursday happy hour. It's a good time. It's usually actually pretty small. If you're like afraid of like crowds of people, just so you know, it's usually quite intimate. We don't have a ton of people joining us all the time. So it's a super fun and intimate hang. Okay, well, I think we should jump into today's tale. And I have to say, Andy, I was a little conflicted on this one. You know, I usually like to be fairly certain of the guilt of the accused in most of our episodes. And this one, I felt like there was some question marks. All right, well, let's do it. It was just before midnight on the last day of May 1998, when 45-year-old Peter Bergnop pulled over his Ford F-150 pickup truck to chat with his 49-year-old wife, Renette, and have a cigar. Bubbly Renette had just returned from six weeks in Italy, where she worked as a tour guide. It was a dream come true for Renette. She really loved travel. She was fluent in Italian. She loved people. This was absolutely the perfect job for her. Okay. And also just a cool job in general. Yeah, it's amazing. I wonder where she was in Italy. But like six weeks in Italy, sign me up. Yeah, I think they were kind of all over the place because in six weeks, you have the time to really travel the country. So this was a job that she had very eagerly pursued. And she had even left her very 
well-paying career as a pharmacist to, to do this. Whoa. Big career change. Peter also loved travel. It had been one of the things that had really bonded them when they first met. He occasionally had to travel as well for his work as a high-end antiques dealer and art appraiser. But six weeks without his wife? That was pretty rough. Peter was struggling. They had lots to talk through and work through. They had been married for 10 years at this point. They were kind of beginning to realize that the dreams that they had for their own individual pursuits and careers might not be as compatible as they once were because she wanted to be traveling as much as she possibly could the majority of the year. And that would obviously benefit her financially as a tour guide. And he wanted to have a very strong home base and he wanted his wife with him. He liked her company a lot. So the truck sat near the Slide Mountain ski area in Nevada. Above the stars shone and below the lights of Reno, Sparks, and Washoe City were visible. We cannot know for sure, Andy, what was said or unsaid in the cab of that pickup truck in the deep, dark night. But what we do know is that only minutes later, Peter Bergna's truck crashed through the guardrail, free-falling for almost 100 feet before it struck the rocky slope and then tumbled down an additional 800 feet. Metal crunching loudly as the truck smashed against rock and tree and land over and over again. One of the Bergnas would survive this horrific accident, and one would not. A heroic effort, including the fire department and a care flight helicopter, would ultimately save the survivor. But the authorities would later question whether they had saved a grieving spouse or a calculating murderer. I mean, I don't think you could predict surviving that. It's pretty wild. That is, I think, my big question mark about this case. Could this be pulled off? Really? It's a pretty risky way to murder somebody if you're also in the vehicle. Totally. But the question is, were they in the vehicle? And if not, then how did they do it? Were they in the vehicle? So are they like a stunt double? Like what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) My main source this week is the book Over the Edge by Michael Fleeman. We're back with Mr. Fleeman over here. You love him. I do. I also watched, I haven't watched this series in so long because I think it came out in 2007. So it's been a minute. I watched an excellent episode of Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice. Never heard of it. Oh, it's an oldie but a goodie. So this episode was also called Over the Edge. And I found a great crimelibrary.org article called Point of No Return by Catherine Ramsland. So let's start off by talking about Peter and Renette a little more before we find out which one of them survived this horrific crash. Okay. Peter was raised in Saratoga, California, the second of four siblings. Peter's dad, Lou Bergna, was a famous Santa Clara County district attorney who was elected six times. Whoa. Apparently, he was so popular that he actually ran unopposed each time because no one wanted to go against him. (laughs) No one wanted to lose. No one wanted to lose because he was very well known. He was known to have amazing judgment, to be fair, to be strong. It was very like, I think his first appointment was in the 1950s. It was like very Perry Mason of him, basically. Yeah. Both he and his wife, Patricia, were very involved with community and charitable acts. Lou worked with the Red Cross. 
and encouraged his four children, who were all adopted, by the way, all four of their children were adopted, into acts of service and finding their own way in the world. Peter was a pretty straight-laced kid and an average student who went to a small Christian college called Seattle Pacific after graduation. It was during his time in Seattle that Peter was said to come into his own. He was a charismatic and gregarious guy who soon came to realize that he had a keen eye for antiques and art. Hmm. Yeah. Peter decided to pursue the antiques trade as a career. So he originally was in school to become a teacher, which was very in line with a lot of his parents' teaching, which was to always give back, give back to the community, counsel the youth. Essentially, his dad said it was really important to work with young people because it was kind of the prevention before the correction because he was in the justice system. Like if you give attention and training and love to younger people, then the chances of them committing crimes later on are much lower. His dad seemed like a really good guy. And Peter was going to become a teacher, but then he got really interested in antiques and art And he found himself fascinated by the business, by the auctions, and he just started kind of independently studying all the auction sales. He would be reading these books about different styles of antiques and eras and things day and night, basically. And in 1986, his passion and drive paid off when he was hired as a freelance appraiser for the prestigious San Francisco auction house Butterfields. Hmm. Yeah, so he got licensed, but he kind of did all of his education on his own. Crazy. Peter moved to a wealthy small town on the banks of Lake Tahoe called Incline Village. In the 90s, it was already pretty ritzy, and Wikipedia now lists it as the number one town in Nevada ranked by per capita income. Whoa. Okay, so many. Yeah, it's probably due to the fact that there are a high number of celebrities and tech billionaires who live there because also... I guess Nevada doesn't tax income. Um, That's right. Yeah, the median price for a home in Incline Village in 2019, median, was $1.3 million. Holy shit. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) That's the middle of the road, guys. That's the middle of the road four years ago. Those are the pre-COVID prices. Oh, my God. Scary. Yeah. So it was certainly a good place to live if you make your money dealing fancy antiques and art to rich people. Peter was very good at his job, too. He could spot diamonds in the rough at garage and estate sales, root out fakes and copies, and he was said to have perfected his pricing. Basically, it's like you want to, I mean, you know, when you sell for Ririku because you have a lot of vintage finds, you want to price things in a way that you're making a profit but you get a good reputation for also finding deals for your clients. Yeah. And I think like the most intriguing part of all of that to me is being able to like spot a fake. I think that's such a skill. Yes. And he was very good at that. Like he wasn't taken in ever. And he was really good at like, you know, you have this about you. I do not. I have no patience. Whenever like Andy and I go antiquing, I'm just like wandering around on my phone. Well, she's like looking at every inch of things, but he could spot something a mile away. Like he stopped at every garage sale, no matter how down market it might look or what was going on. He looked at everything. If somebody put something out on the street, he was going to go check it out. 
And they said that he really did make some good finds this way. He bought a table for $700 in Reno and it ended up being some big expensive fancy antique brand. I can't tell you what it was, but he sold it in San Francisco for $20,000 in the 80s. Yes. So Peter had a very brief marriage in the early 1980s, and he found himself looking for love again as he was approaching his mid-30s. And his friends were all too happy to set their friend Peter up with dates because apparently, according to his friends, he was a really good guy. One of his friends talked about how in the early 80s, his daughter had Tourette syndrome before there was a lot of resources to help the family and her. And that Peter had used his connections to get this friend's daughter in a clinical trial for a special medicine that was being used in Europe, but not in the United States at that point. And I guess that this medicine was a game changer for them. He said, we started getting our daughter back. Peter did what all of the professionals couldn't do. Oh, so he's still servicing youth and, and the community in ways that he can, even though his career isn't in that. Yes. And that's what a lot of people said to in Incline Village, that even though he didn't have kids, he worked with kids, he worked with families, he was known in the neighborhood, he was known in the town. And if Peter did have any flaws, it was that he was probably a little too friendly. He was described as a close talker and a big hugger. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like somebody who like doesn't really get the fact that maybe personal space. Yes, that they're invading your personal space. And you're like, okay, you're really nice, but you're really close to me right now. He would not have thrived during COVID. <laughs> no, it would have been a very hard time for Peter. Stay back. <laughs> yes. So his friends wanted to find somebody that he could make happy and would make him happy. And they needed somebody that would understand, you know, this big warmness of him. And the fact that he was like a character, he was kind of larger than life. He was very outgoing. He talked pretty loud. He was just big. And they felt like when they met Renette Riella, that this was the woman for him to a T. As tall as Peter was, he was like a six foot. Renette was like, <laughs> I think she was like four nine or something. What? So she was really tiny, but she definitely made up for it with the same big personality. She was three years older than Peter, so she was 38 when they met. She was smart, funny, kind. She had that warmth and that glow. Renette had grown up on a dairy farm in California's San Joaquin Valley. She had one older half-brother and two younger brothers. She was 13 years older than her youngest brother, and he said that she was basically his extra mom. She was instrumental in raising him. Her brothers absolutely adored her, and later on, their wives would also say that she was just phenomenal. And she was also, even though she was tiny, she could do the farm work. I mean, she was right there with them. They had 120 cows. What? Yeah, that's a lot of work. It was a big, crazy, I can't remember exact acreage, but it was basically a ranch. One of her sisters-in-law said that she was the perfect sister. It was the sister that you would all wish for. She was loving and kind and giving. She was the family member that never forgot a birthday or an anniversary and sent a very touching present. And she was just one of those people that was always there for you. She graduated from UC Davis in 1971 with honors and ended up going to pharmacy school. 
Renette was a devout Catholic who loved to travel. They said that even like just going to the airport with her was an event because she would get so excited knowing she was just going somewhere. (laughs) And of course, she really liked Italy because that was where her family was originally from. And so I guess she spoke Italian fluently and she spoke pretty passable French as well. So she was working as a full-time pharmacist when she moved to Incline Village, where she was introduced to Peter Bergna in 1987. It was a near-instant connection, and the couple married only months after meeting. Wow. Yeah, very quickly. I think at that point, they both knew what they wanted. You could see with these two gregarious personalities that it would feel instant. And at that point, he was 35 and she was 38, so I don't think they wanted to waste time. Over the years, they built a really nice life together. Collectively, they made over $200,000 a year, which is almost double in today's money. I think it's like somewhere between $380,000 or $410,000, like depending where in the 90s you're looking at. Yep. And no kids. An old dinkaroo. They are dinking it up right now in a beautiful, lovely location. Now, they did have a beautiful house, but I think to Peter's chagrin, it wasn't on Lake Tahoe. Like he wanted to eventually save up enough that they could get one of the lakeside houses, but it was real close and still in very ritzy Incline Village and still a wonderful setting. Renette served as the president of the Pharmaceutical Society of Nevada. She gardened and she sang in her church choir while Peter expanded his business and coached the local soccer team. Cute. As the years passed, both Renette and Peter wanted to make some lifestyle changes. Renette wanted to travel more and, in fact, make travel her life and business, while Peter wanted to have children and a more conventional life. It's pretty confusing whether they tried, whether they talked about it before they had kids. And I think that this is because fertility journeys and deciding whether to have children is such a personal thing, because it seems like there may have been some effort to have biological children early on when they were very first married and either Renette was unable or Peter was unable or whatever it was, it didn't come to fruition. And it seemed like Peter wanted to adopt because he was adopted and he knew that that is a very valid and wonderful way to welcome children. And I don't know if it was that she didn't want to adopt or she just was really content with her life and she was already zooming out to what she wanted her future to be, which was travel. But in any case, they had reached a diverging path with their desires for the future. And they were just getting to an age where you really do have to make those choices. Now, Peter was 45 and I believe Renette had just turned 49. Renette was very, very happy, though, in what her new path was. She shone in her new position. Her boss said that she was incredible, just a gift to their business because she was smart, capable, personable, but also easygoing. To be a tour guide, you have to be able to navigate a whole lot of things that can pop up while also being charismatic and comprehensive at the same time. And Renette had all of those qualities in spades. And this dream job did come at a cost, both figuratively and literally. Her annual salary was half of what it had been when she worked as a pharmacist. And the constant travel was, of course, taking a toll on her marriage. On the evening that Peter Bergna's truck plunged down Side Mountain, Renette had been returning from a six-week tour through Italy. 
like I said, what truly happened is between one human being and their God, because someone would not survive to tell their side of the story. Just after midnight on June 1st, 1998, the Nevada Highway Patrol dispatch received a 911 call from an extremely distressed man who was, of course, Peter Bergna. Yeah, I was going to say not Renette. Yeah. Peter was hysterical. He was screaming for Renette as he breathlessly told the dispatcher that his vehicle had gone off the edge of a hill and that his wife had been inside. His wife had been inside. He's saying that we went over this cliff. Okay, he said we. Yeah, we went over the cliff and I was ejected, essentially. Like, I flew out of the vehicle, like, halfway down. But my wife was strapped in and she's still in the vehicle. She's still in the truck. But it's very hard to understand him. He's screaming for Renette. He just keeps screaming Renette, Renette over and over again. And he's calling from a cell phone. This is 1998. So the dispatcher has no way at this time to trace where exactly his location is. They could tell if somebody was calling from a landline, of course, it would come up, but she didn't know where he was. And it's unclear if he is okay at that point because he's crying, he's screaming. And he told the dispatcher that he and his wife had been driving down the mountain near the ski area. And she's trying to figure out which ski area this was. When he said he doesn't know, but he thinks his brakes failed. All he knows is that he was trying to stop the truck and he couldn't do it and he doesn't know what happened. And that was when the truck flew through a guardrail. Now, this is a very, very high precipice. This is a area from which people go paragliding. This is like an area where people go off because it drops down about a thousand feet. And is it somewhere that people normally drive or is it you have to go out of your way to get there? You would definitely have to go out of your way to get there unless you were skiing, which they were not. But he would later say that they drove up there to talk because there is a parking area with a view, essentially a parking area for the view. And you can see the lights of three different cities because it's so high up. Yep. It really does look like the edge of the world. It's like one of those places that I always get a little nervous about when you're driving on on a windy mountain road. He said that the truck flew through the guardrail. He was thrown from the truck and he landed on the side of the mountain where he still was on his cell phone while Renette was seemingly still inside the truck. And he said that the truck had tumbled down several hundred feet, but he it was it was completely dark. He didn't hear anything. He was screaming for his wife, but he didn't hear her screaming back. He had no idea where the truck was at that point. So just to make sure I'm clear, what I'm imagining is that the truck goes off the cliff and he gets ejected out and then is like hanging on the side of a mountain. He's telling the dispatcher, I'm hanging on with one hand. But it down to like the first hundred, there was a slight slope and then kind of a stop where the, the truck like hit first at that first hundred feet and bounced off and then it went off again. So it wasn't like he's like rock climbing where you imagine that he's like holding on like the kitty from the poster with just his little nails. Yep. He's kind of like on the side of the slope, but he says at that point that he's slipping. He's really nervous about slipping down. 
because he can't see very well. And he doesn't know exactly where he is. So he doesn't know what's below him. So he's trying desperately to hang on at that point. And he's also seemingly very upset. He's saying, why didn't it stop? Why me? Where's my wife? Well, throughout the search, which is they immediately dispatched emergency responders to this area because they know he's in this general area and they're looking for an accident site. So throughout the search and Peter's conversation with the dispatch, he said that he had no idea exactly where he was and that he was just, like I said, clinging to this cliffside. So they don't really know what to expect. She's asking him if he's injured. And he said at that point that he believed he had injuries to his back and his ankle. And he was very frightened of slipping down the hillside. So, of course, they're concerned about this potential back injury because he's possibly paralyzed or can be if they do something in the rescue attempt that harms him. And they also want to find him before he slips further away, potentially causing a greater injury or even death. Yeah. So, yeah, they deployed a... CareFlight helicopter that would essentially use a searchlight to search for them, but was also equipped to take them to the hospital. This is kind of a two for one here. It'll help find them and then it'll be completely ready to medevac them to a hospital to be treated for their injuries. But eventually, Peter was able to hear the sirens and tell dispatch essentially that the officers were in the right area in the EMTs. So the highway patrol troopers find where the truck went off the road. They find a break in the guardrail. And immediately they have a lot of questions about this accident, obviously. Number one, if Peter was thrown from the vehicle so violently, how did he have the good fortune to keep his cell phone on his body? Yeah. Number two, why wasn't there any sign of an accident on the road. So they really had to hunt for this section of broken guardrail to pinpoint where Peter and Renette had gone off the road, because usually in an accident like this, there's a lot of skid marks and proof that the driver had tried to pump the brakes or even steer away from the guardrail. If they're unable to pump the brakes, there's usually some sign or you know, that they were attempting to, maybe they bumped the guardrail a couple times as they attempted to steer away from it. And then later on, they flew off. There was nothing. It was just like, no marks whatsoever. And then broken guardrail and it's gone. Yeah. So it had been really hard to find. And this was uncommon because they see accidents like this all the time. Yeah. Trooper Rick McClellan heard Peter yelling from the area that was around the broken guardrail and went to find him. The first thing that he noticed was that there was an Incline Village baseball hat sitting on the road next to the guardrail, which seemed out of place because everything else had obviously gone over with the truck. Almost 80 feet down, they found Peter in shockingly good condition. Despite the fact that he had allegedly been thrown out of the vehicle, he had no obvious serious injuries. There was no blood on his body, no cuts. There was no clearly broken bones. And the trooper noticed that he didn't even have much dirt or debris on his body. The trooper said it was mostly limited to the back of his pants, the kind of dirt pattern you'd see if somebody had slid down the hill. 
A paramedic rushed to check Peter out and prepare him for the care flight to the hospital, and he too was surprised about Peter's pretty good condition. All of the tests seemed to confirm that Peter had somehow managed to escape any major injury because he's doing all the run through of the test to make sure there's not any sort of back injury or neurological injury. And he found that Peter wasn't even in shock, which they usually see in victims of accidents like this. And he did seem to have an ankle injury, but the lower back injury didn't seem to be like a real thing. It was kind of like just like vaguely like it's kind of sore. The paramedic who was the one who put Peter through these tests and did the initial evaluation was named Jeff Sombrano. And he said in Michael Fleeman's book, generally people that are ejected don't survive. And the ones who do survive sustain major injury, either orthopedically through spinal fractures or major pelvic fractures or chest injuries. Or they sustain major head injuries or soft tissue injuries. But this man didn't have so much as a scratch from broken glass on him. Yeah, it's a little too clean. Squeaky clean. Little too miraculous. Unfortunately, Renette had not fared so well. The highway patrolman crawled several hundred feet all the way down this cliff looking for the truck. And while they were basically scaling and sliding down this cliff, they found the cab of the truck as well as other debris that had flown from the vehicle, including a couple of gas cans, which was a little sketch. Random gas cans that were full of gas? Yes, they were now leaking out, of course, but they, it seemed that they had once been full of gas because they didn't have their gas caps on them either. So they're noticing all this stuff. There was like some clothing, there was books, there was stuff that had obviously been in the cab of the truck. And then they finally found where the truck had landed about 700 feet down from where it had gone off the road. So the truck was upside down and it was completely crumbled. They said that the roof was crushed down almost to the headrest. Oh, my God. Renette was hanging upside down. She was still partially wrapped in her seatbelt at that time. The driver's side airbag had clearly deployed, but Renette's had not. And they would later find out that it had been turned off. Oh, my God. Whoa. There's like so much. So much going on here. It was pretty clear by the time they got there that Renette was deceased, but they did cut her down and examine her to make sure. And she had no pulse and just really extensive injuries. Also, you kind of have to think at this point as like a paramedic or a cop that's trying to figure this out, like you have to kind of see if there's maybe a chance that she was passed away before the accident too. Exactly. But yeah, she's certainly no longer with us at the point that they find her. So they grimly radioed the care flight crew that their services wouldn't be required, at least for Renette, because the patient was not salvageable. So to your point, Andy, later on, they would do an autopsy. And unfortunately, Renette's body was so mangled that the medical examiner was having a very difficult time determining even the exact cause of her death. She had 13 broken ribs, a broken kneecap. She had a broken wrist. It was obvious that she had suffered quite a bit of blunt force trauma. Now, 
this is not unexpected given the tumbling action of the very heavy truck. She had blood in her chest cavity as well as bleeding in the brain, and she had a broken neck. Jeez. But due to the severity of Renette's injuries, it was impossible to know if she'd been injured prior to the truck going off the cliff. There was no at least obvious way to tell that there was an injury that had already clotted or anything like that. It was not clear. So in the dark night, Peter had been flown to the hospital and the authorities were still at the scene. Now the light is dawning. The sun is coming up and they're still there trying to gather evidence and put the pieces together to find out what could have happened in this situation. But they can't figure out how the truck went over the guardrail where it did anyway, because where it had gone off, essentially you would be, if you're just traveling down the mountain, you'd be turning towards the left to continue on on the road around the mountain. Where it had gone off, you would have to steer it to that point. You'd actually have to, based on going down the mountain, turn to the right. Like you're turning the steering wheel to the right purposely. Not go straight. Like it's not like the wheel didn't work or the brakes didn't work. Exactly. Like if if like it was it wouldn't be a thing that if you were like even frozen with the steering wheel, your car would continue to turn the curve around down around the mountain if you think of like a corkscrew type action, right? So it's confusing to the troopers at the scene how this even occurred even if his brakes did go out. And it just doesn't make sense. So imagine that your brakes do go out, you would continue to steer with the road. And in the very least, you'd smash into the side of the mountain because you'd be trying to stay away from the edge versus steering into the edge, willingly steering into the great abyss. No. So they're confused about that. And they're looking at the road. They're cataloging evidence. They are obviously at this point, unfortunately, had also collected Renette's body and her body is now in a body bag at the top where they had gone off the road ready for transport to the medical examiner. And casually, this car drops by with Peter Bergna as the passenger. He gets out of the passenger side door. I guess somebody was giving him a ride home and he asked to stop by the scene. So they're like, whoa. We saw you a few hours ago and you were screaming that your back was in pain, that you were unable to walk. They thought this guy was in good condition, but he was still injured. And now he barely has his ankle wrapped. He has a crutch, but just a light limp. And he's at the scene of the crime or scene of the accident, depending on how you're looking at this. And he is asking them if they've found his fanny pack. Excuse me, what? Oh, you heard me right. Your pet's a member of the family, so don't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Give them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food that you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. 
Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Andy, you know we're a crazy dog household over here. Oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> oh, Nathaniel's nice. First dog together was a deaf pit bull named Isis. And now we have a big Bernese mountain dog puppy named Artemis slash Artie. And she just got back from a very intensive training course because we wanted her to have everything she needs for the happiest, healthiest life possible with us. And burners, like so many dog breeds, can have real food sensitivities. Especially I learned to chicken in the breed that I have right now. And that's why we were so excited to discover such an amazing, fresh, customizable option in Nom Nom because I can select the various ingredients that go into her food and say that, you know, chicken might not be a fit for her. And that's used in millions of dog foods. I know how huge of a priority it was for you guys to have the healthiest possible diet for Artie. And it's just so awesome that Nom Nom is such a huge help and also delivers that to you literally. Oh, I know. It makes it so easy. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled try, N-O-M, dot com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Trynom.com slash lovemurder. Nom nom. He had had a fanny pack with, I guess, maybe his wallet in it or some other valuables. And he had stopped by the scene of the accident to ask the investigators if they had come across his fanny pack in the debris. Now, they had not, so they said that they would keep an eye out for it. But they were very weirded out by the fact that he did not ask about Renette. He didn't ask about her condition or if she had been found. And is the body bag up there? The body bag, they said, was mere feet away from him. It could not have been more than 10 feet away from him at most, they said. And it's very obviously a body bag. And he barely looked at it, didn't say, oh, my God, is my wife in there? What's going on? They just told him, no, we haven't found the fanny pack. And he explained what it looked like. They said, okay, we'll keep an eye out for it. And then he got back in the car and drove away without even barely looking at Renette. Who was driving him? I don't know if it was a family member or a friend, but it, was, it wasn't anyone very consequential. Like, that will come up in the story again. Whoa. I mean, bro. Also, we know what a fanny pack looks like. It's the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, I think he was like describing like the color or something. A detective Beltran, who I believe is also on Dominic Dunn's show, was on the scene at the time and he thought that this was very strange. I mean, there was already some quite yellow moving into red flags, let's say some orange flags all over the place. And now he's like, all right, that's a big old red flag. So at that point, he decided that he was going to bring Peter down to the station and in for some questioning, which he did so at 10 a.m. that morning. So everyone's exhausted. Everyone's been up since before midnight investigating this crash. And now he's, he wants to bring him in and question him while everything is still fresh. 
pretty much right away, Peter told the detectives that there had been issues in the marriage. So usually when people are questioned by the police, they say, oh, no, we had a, a fine marriage. Everything was great. And then they find out that it wasn't later. But he's very upfront. He said that the previous year she had been traveling for at least three months out of the year. And she wanted to travel even more this year. And he wanted a wife who was home with him. He said that he was lonely and that he missed her and he wanted a wife that wanted to spend time with him and that they were having some growing frustrations about their different and diverging needs. He said that he had picked her up at the airport and that they had gone to Slide Mountain to talk about their marriage. And he did initially claim that this overlook was one of their favorite romantic spots to get away, just look over the valley and talk. However, later on in the same interrogation or questioning, he said that he had only been there five or six times over the last 11 years. Then even later on, he said that this was Renette's first time there. So already there's inconsistencies in his story about how often he had been to this overlook and if Renette had ever been there before. And also, I have to imagine, I really honestly cannot imagine flying from Italy to the West Coast and then your husband picks you up and he wants to, at midnight, when you have to be exhausted and jet-lagged, go for a long drive for a serious marital chat? Yeah. I also feel like I think there can be situations when you're being interrogated or after something really traumatic that happens where there's inconsistencies in like the events of the night or the events that like occurred. But when it's something general about how often you've visited somewhere and that it was supposed to be one of your favorite places to go and there's inconsistencies with how many times you've been in the past decade, I feel like that's strange. Yeah, I wouldn't call any place that my favorite place that I didn't go to more than a handful of times a year, let alone a handful of times over a decade. So this is all confusing. I mean, he clarified some of these things. He said that in Italy, it was already the morning time. So even though she was jet lagged, it was jet lagged in that direction. So she was awake and she was ready to talk about this. And he also said that this conversation went very well. Now, they did find this like list of ways to improve their relationship in his pocket because they had taken his clothes from him as well because they wanted to obviously catalog them if they needed to be tested for evidence later. And they had found this like paper printed list in his pocket. It was an agreement to improve our marriage. And he wrote on it, one, improve our self-love, two, love the other person, Three, listen to the other person's ideas. Four, compromise with our ideas. Five, implement our ideas. Six, work for common goals. Be kind to others. Take control of our money and bills. Deal with problems as they arise. Use common sense when dealing with problems and make love more often. So they had already found this note. He said that this was like essentially his outline for having this conversation with her. But he said that Renette actually took it very well that she took it in stride. She also wanted to improve the relationship. And to his excitement and surprise, she said that she was going to cut down on her travel and on her tour guide business. 
He said that he was smoking a cigar and that Renette did not enjoy the smell of cigar smoke. So he had the window rolled down when they decided to drive down to the next scenic overlook, the next ledge, where you could see more of the Reno lights. So you had to go down and to the left, and that's when you'd be afforded the glittering lights of Reno. So he said that's exactly what they were doing when he was rounding this corner and the brakes stopped working. And he said that he didn't know what happened. He didn't know if he was punching the brakes and they had stopped working. Maybe in his panic, he had hit the accelerator. He had no idea. And then he said the next thing he knew, he's saying to Renette, I can't stop. I can't stop. And then they flew through the guardrail. And he said that he was thrown from the truck, but he could not remember how. He said he hadn't been wearing a seatbelt, and Renette had because she always, always religiously wore her seatbelt. He said that the window had been open, so it's possible he flew through the open window. It's possible the door flew open, but he could not remember. All of a sudden, it was just a blur, and then he was lying on the cliffside. And so they were asking him all these questions like, how are you feeling? What were you thinking? Did you know where Renette was? And he said, well, I was looking for fire. And they're like, well, why were you looking for a fire? He said that. Yes, he was like, I thought that there'd be a fire because I had two full gas cans that didn't have lids in the back of my truck. So he admits it. And they're like, mm-hmm, we were kind of waiting for you to say something because we wanted to know why we found these mostly empty gas cans, what was going on there. And he said that's why he assumed that they would cause an explosion when the truck went over, but that didn't happen. It seems like the cans just flew out of the truck. Can't believe that's like a thought in your brain when that happens. Yeah. So they thought it was strange too. And they wanted to know why you would have two open cans of gas in your truck with assuming, because he said he had the back of the truck covered because he often transported antiques in it. And he did have some books and stuff back there. So why would you have two open cans of gas also back there with antiques you're transporting? Yes, so weird. It's very weird. And he said that it was because he was going to Vegas the next day or shortly after. And Vegas had expensive gas or more expensive gas than where his area of Incline Village did. And that he didn't want to have to stop and get gas there. So he filled up two cans of the more affordable gasoline. Yeah, because I'm sure that's what people in his town do. (laughs) With all that money? Yeah, just pinching pennies. So yeah, they also asked him about the airbags. Why had Renette's airbag been turned off? Now, he says that somebody only two months earlier had told him that airbags are actually dangerous and could be fatal for people who are under five feet tall. And I do remember this being a thing. I remember that study coming out because my mom, until I was pretty tall, wouldn't let me sit in the front seat of a car. So that one's not crazy. It might be convenient excuse, but that totally was a thing at that time where they said, It turns out in non-fatal car crashes, an airbag could end up killing somebody of that specific height or lack of height. I think even now you're not supposed to put your kids in the front seat for that reason. 
You're definitely not. Yeah. So that kind of made sense. Peter also claimed that even though they were having some issues, their issues were involved in him loving his wife and wanting more time with her, not less. So he would scarcely want her dead. And he said there was absolutely no cheating in their relationship at all. They were completely committed to one another. He also did not believe for a second that Renette had been unfaithful to him in any capacity. He said, quote, I don't go out. I don't go hit the bars. I'm not out looking for women. I stay home. And that gets someone like myself lonely. And I did not like to do that. And so I expressed that opinion to her that I was very unhappy in that respect. I had hope that she would change. And we talked about compromise. So he said that's kind of like when they're like, oh, was there anyone else? He's like, no, the whole point is that I was lonely because I was being left alone and I wanted more time with her. So according to Peter, things were getting better. They were going to work on this marriage. They were getting everything back on track. No one had cheated on anyone. But the detective was skeptical about if that was really how this conversation went or how this conversation went at all, because we don't know if Peter potentially incapacitated Renette somehow, either by injury. I don't know what test they ran on her. I don't think it appeared that she had been drugged, but it wasn't explicitly stated. But there's plenty of ways to incapacitate somebody that don't involve drugs, obviously. So the detective is trying to figure out if he's telling the truth. So he says, oh, well, it seems like maybe divorce had come up. And he said, no, no, we had never talked about divorce. And he's like, well, there was this caretaker, which was basically at the place where he was before he drove. Like, so higher up on the ski resort, there was like a little building. There's a little building there, I guess a service building maybe. And the detective insinuated that there had been a caretaker in that building and had overheard a fight or conversation. Now, there was no such caretaker. He was just trying to ascertain what Peter was saying and what he would say when he thought somebody had heard them and would be there to witness a different story. So he said that this phantom caretaker had said that they might have been arguing and that maybe he heard the word divorce. And at that point, Peter was like, oh, uh, well, I talk really loud, so maybe he was confused about our discussion being an argument because I'm a really loud talker. And, you know, Renette might have said she wanted a divorce and I might have said, so Peter's saying, I might have said something back like, you're not going to get to take my antiques away from me. He's like, I might have said that, like about a divorce, but we didn't finish the conversation there. We kind of decided to work through it. And so he kind of like backpedals a little bit. And at that point, he had been doing all of this just from his own goodwill. He hadn't involved an attorney. So he's like, oh, you know, I'm really tired. Obviously, it's been a long night. I'm going to have to get going. And they asked him if he would come back the next day to take a polygraph. So he was asked to take a lie detector test. And he's like, of course, absolutely. I'll be back tomorrow. And he does come back the next day. And he does take a polygraph. But he was breathing really heavily and very oddly the entire time to the point where the polygraph examiner is saying, sir, do we need to take a break? I can't get an accurate reading if you are breathing like that. It's picking up weird things on this test. And he continued to do so to the point that the polygraph examiner said in his notes, that he felt that Peter was trying to manipulate and confuse the results. And as a result of that, he was unable to determine anything. 
Wow. Meanwhile, the truck had been airlifted to a police lab to determine if something had mechanically gone wrong. Because that would prove that he was innocent right there. They wouldn't even have to go down the investigation route if it turns out that his brakes did fail. But there was nothing wrong with the truck. They could not figure out anything. It appeared that there was no, like, leaking brake fluid. There was no apparent, like, prior damage. They took that truck apart little piece by little piece with, like, auto mechanic forensic specialists. Amazing. I was wondering if they could do that. Yeah, like everything documented, everything taken apart. They studied every part of that truck and they could not find a single underlying issue that would have caused the brakes to fail. Now, by this point, Peter lawyered up and the detective's suspicion only increased because now they know that there was no way it was a mechanical failure. And they weren't the only ones who were harboring some suspicions. Renette's family began to get pretty suspicious as soon as the shock of their gigantic loss passed over them, as soon as they were able to really sit down and think about it, they were considering what Peter had told them. Because, of course, these are her brothers and her sisters. I mean, they'd all been married for a really long time. So these were her sisters as well, it felt like at that time. And they're like, well, what happened? That would be the first thing you would ask if you find out that they were both in the accident, especially if somebody's driving. You'd say, what did you do? What happened? Why did this happen? And they said that Peter was inconsistent with his stories, just like he had been with the police. And they also noticed that when he was retelling what had happened, he would cry or he would make appropriate crying noises, but tears never came out of his eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And they were really suspicious about this. And the authorities said the same thing that night when he was being airlifted when he was at the hospital, when he was initially questioned, he would be like, ooh, 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 but no tears would come out. Wow. Renette's brothers and wives said that they had noticed that Peter had often put Renette down in public. Peter fancied himself a sophisticate and he would occasionally belittle Renette. They said that he would do so even in front of them, her family. Renette's brother said that Renette was constantly making excuses for Peter's behavior and attempting to smooth things over. So she would try to like laugh things off or say it's, it wasn't serious or he's just joking. As a devout Catholic, Renette did not see divorce as an option. And her family felt that, yes, she absolutely did love traveling. But this career switch at this point in her life and her desire to travel so much multiple months a year was almost or maybe partly motivated by her desire to get some separation from Peter, that she, because of her religious views, didn't feel like she could actually go forward with a separation and divorce, but she could do something that gave her this reprieve several months a year. Renette's family members weren't the only ones who had noticed that there was a cruel streak that the art dealer had towards his wife. Their neighbor, Cynthia, had noticed that the couple had been fighting in the months leading up to Renette leaving for her Italian tour quite a bit. And she said to her horror, she had once also watched Peter intentionally aim his snowblower at Renette as she attempted to leave their house, inundating her with icy cold snow that was 
pelting her directly in the face from the snowblower. Yeah, that's so crazy. It's very painful. And you imagine that she's leaving for the day. So you're dressed, you're ready to go. You might have some makeup on. And somebody is going to, even if it wasn't painful, which it sounded like, or at least the the way the neighbor described it, it would have been painful at close range. It would completely derail your day and what you look like and how you felt about going out into the world. Furthermore, this neighbor, Cynthia, challenged the supposedly good public conception of Peter as a great husband and community man who didn't have a wandering eye and wasn't interested in other women. She's on the show as well. And she said that he made quite a habit out of coming out of his house and staring or leering at her and her friends when they used her hot tub. Ew. Even worse, she said that he had once come over to her house while Renette was away and said to her, your husband sure is out of town a lot. And she said the way he said it was very suggestive. On the show, she said, quote, although they bleeped one of these words out, I didn't know if he wanted to kill me or fuck me. She said it was kind of flirtatious, but kind of threatening. Like, hey, I've noticed that your husband's not around very often. Yeah, that's so fucking creepy. Really creepy. And there were some other women in Inclined Village who said that they also got the icks from Peter. Literally, the night before Renette flew home from Italy, the night before, Peter had been out at a 40th birthday party where he repeatedly hit on a woman until she had to ask her friend to run interference. And this was also at a dance club. So they had met at like a restaurant and they were all at this party or something. And then everyone had gone to like a house party and then like a dance club into the wee hours of the morning. And so he'd been part of this group. And this was the very next day he's saying, I don't go out. I don't go to bars. I don't hit on people. I don't go dancing. You know, like he's saying that he's definitely a liar. He's a liar. So they're finding out that he's a liar in the very least. As the investigation progressed, investigators discovered that only weeks after Renette's death that Peter was trying to get back in touch with these women almost immediately, the women that he had met and connected with at this party, and that there were some other women that he was basically saying, now that my wife's gone, do you want to hang out? Do you want to have dinner? So there was one friend that he kind of knew through his work, I think she worked at a bank that was involved in his antiques business somehow. And they had been platonic. So they were more like colleagues. They'd never really progressed. They'd never really had that much to do with each other outside of the bank. And after she heard about what happened to his wife, she, of course, as a caring person, was like, oh, let me like bring dinner over And they became a little bit more friendly in his time of need. But she said that it was only a couple months, I think, after Renette had passed and she had brought some dinner over to his house. And he had already suggested it was like a nice night that maybe they get into the hot tub. Okay. And this wasn't, I guess it wasn't an unusual thing to do, like in this time and place. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's like kind of strange. But She was like, sure, yeah, I mean, I'll drop in the hot tub with you and we'll keep chatting. And she said at that point she got really uncomfortable because he was coming on to her. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And he put his arm around her even though she was scooting away and groped her breast. Ew. It was supposedly only a couple months or a few months after Renette had passed away. And she said that she got a 
immediately out of the hot tub, which apparently her daughter was like watching a movie. She had a younger child watching a movie on the couch and got her daughter and left. So she was like, went to the police then and was like, this just seemed odd to me. I don't know if it matters, but it's definitely he didn't seem like he's missing his wife at all. And I was trying to be there for him as a friend. And then he super creeped me out. So maybe there's other people that might have similar stories. And they did find other stories not that aggressive of him hitting on women before Renette's death that previously he had asked women out to dinner and all of them knew that he was married and said no. So the investigators found absolutely no evidence of an affair, but it seemed like that was not for a lack of trying on Peter's part. Yeah. Yeah. Furthermore, it was reported that Peter wasn't just unhappy that Renette took the tour guide job because she was gone so frequently, but also because it cut her salary in half. Oh, my God. Yeah, he wanted her money. He liked the finer things in life. And the two of them both were earning six figures at that point when she was working as a pharmacist. So that was a lot of scratch for two people without dependents. Peter wanted companionship children, and money. In his mind, Renat was unwilling to give him the first two things, but perhaps as a parting gift, she would give him plenty of the latter so he could find a new partner to have the first two things with. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Apparently, he's not doing so well here. Renette's life insurance policy paid out to Peter at $250,000, and he got a $200,000 bonus on top of this for an accidental death clause. So that's nearly a half million dollars in 1998, which is more like 830 to $850,000 in today's money. Although I do have to say that his insurance salesman did say that Renette was the one that upped her own life insurance. Okay. That it wasn't Peter's idea. But you don't know that if even though she did it. It could still have been. We don't know that. So Renette's family was horrified as they watch Peter get this money and start spending his windfall. So they're cooperating with the police and they believe this is only, again, a handful of months after Renette has passed, that Peter purposely caused the truck to go off the cliff with their beloved sister and aunt inside. And so they're sure that this happened or at least 90 percent sure. And now Peter is extravagantly spending the life insurance money. He was apparently bragging about buying all of this expensive wine. He was going on lavish trips to Hawaii and to Europe after, you know, that was her passion. He bought himself a new vehicle and apparently one for his secretary. But what really stood out to Renette's family was that Peter's new vehicle was a new truck. And the truck was a Ford F-150, the exact model that had plunged 800 feet off a cliff with his wife inside, killing her. The exact model whose brakes he claimed had failed. Why on earth would you buy that vehicle again? Even if the brakes hadn't failed, why would you want to be reminded of the last place you saw your wife in a horrific car accident? And if you really believe the brakes went out and that it was a problem with the Ford manufacturing company, then now you just have a death wish, apparently. So that really, really bothered the Riellas. 
But to make things considerably worse, Renette and her two younger brothers had inherited their family's dairy farm already. And this had happened a couple years earlier. And at the time, Peter felt that he should be involved in getting some of Renette's inheritance. Jesus. And even though they weren't in the will. So he wanted to be involved in this conversation about what they were going to do with the ranch now that their parents had passed. And the brothers and Renette were like, I'm sorry, the spouses don't get to be involved in this conversation. This is between the people who have lived and worked on this ranch. And he was not happy about that, apparently. But the siblings worked out a deal that they weren't going to sell the ranch. They were going to lease a lot of the farmland to farmers. That's something we do on our farm as well to make a little bit of the money back so that you don't have to sell something that's been in your family legacy. Richard, one of the brothers, stayed and lived and worked on the farm as well. And they just decided that if it ever came time where one of the siblings had to sell for a financial reason, that they would work out an arrangement where the other two siblings would buy the third out. So that was the plan. So at the time that their parents passed away, the farm had been valued at $660,000. And so in this agreement that they made, they said that each of the parcels would be worth $220,000. So now Renette has died. And I guess there had been some stipulation. I think this was probably to protect the wives of the brothers as well. If something had happened to one of the siblings, assuming a long and healthy life, I think they were thinking when they're elderly, that the surviving spouse should get that money because that belonged to them. Now, immediately, Peter starts trying to get his hand on that money like weeks after Renette has died. So her brothers are like, absolutely not. Like they at this point think that he had something to do with this so-called accident. And they straight up told him, we are going to block you from trying to inherit one third of our family ranch. Now, Peter already has a modern equivalent of almost a million dollars in life insurance money. He makes a six-figure salary dealing antiques. He has no kids or dependents to care for. And later it would come out that he actually stood to inherit a couple million dollars from his wealthy parents' estate. Wow. So this guy is not hurting for cash. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to plunder Renette's family farm, but he does. He hired an attorney to fight for his share. Richard, Renette's brother, the one who is still the one actively working on this farm, said, you know, we've been brother-in-laws for 10 years. Let's just try to work this out man-to-man. Let's have a real conversation with this. Because, like, dude, this farm has been in our family for four generations. This is where Renette grew up. She was married to you for 10 years. Being married to my sister for 10 years does not entitle you to one-third of a farm that has been in our family for generations. Like, look at this with real eyes. And he was like, well, I don't want $220,000. I believe the farm is undervalued and you're purposely undervaluing it and trying to hide money from me. And I think I'm entitled to a payment of $400,000. This is just not the way that someone who's grieving acts about this stuff. 
or like cared about their spouse at all. No. Well, it gets worse. It gets even worse because now they're just like really aghast. And he now has all this money. So he says, essentially, fight me. Fight me on it. We'll keep going back and forth with lawyers for as long as you want until you give me this money because he knows they don't have the money for the lawyers. Also, when you have a family farm like this, even coming up with $220,000 is very hard because they had made a decision together not to sell it. It's not like you can just peel away one third of the acreage and magically sell it because it's like the value of the entire operation and where buildings are and where you can actually have livestock. Like just peeling part of the the acreage away isn't going to give you magically $220,000. So this is a big deal for these guys to have to come up with this money, even if it was just the correct amount. And so they're in a really bad place at this point. And they also know that he can tie them up in legal bills forever. And it just made them really, really, really sick to their stomach. And while he's on the phone with Peter, he's trying to explain this to Peter and saying, it's not right, dude. It's not right. And I guess Peter started getting angry and he goes, I need all the money I can get. I lost the earning potential of your sister for the next 13 to 15 years. What? Richard was, it was like he was slapped in the face. He was like, uh, my sister is dead and you're talking about losing her earning potential. It's disgusting. And, you know, I do, if you watch the show, they're so upset. These men are shaking. They're so upset. They're near tears. I think it was Renette's other brother who said that they had no choice. They had to make a deal with the devil. They ended up coming up to agreement and giving him $275,000. They couldn't afford to fight him. And they also were just so sickened at the idea of him owning a piece of their family legacy that they had come to the conclusion that it was better to pay him blood money. So they're handing over this unbelievably large check to the man that they believe killed their sister. Wow. Yeah, her brother said it was the hardest thing he's ever had to do. But the Riellas were not alone in not thinking very highly of Peter Bergna at this point. Though the police were having a very difficult time proving that Peter had masterminded his truck going off the cliff with Renette inside of it, public opinion had very much turned against Peter. The residents of Incline Village noticed that he never spoke about Renette. He was already trying to get out there, flirting, dating, being flirtatious. He didn't appear to be grieving whatsoever. When people tried to bring things over and talk about Renette, he just wanted to breeze right by it and move on. And they did not take very kindly to it. He soon became known as the O.J. Simpson of Incline Village. Wow. Okay. Not a great nickname. So Peter said, screw this. I'm out. He appreciates being well-regarded. I'm sure he has always wanted to be as well-regarded as his father was, and he certainly isn't getting that now. It's quite the opposite. So within five months of Renette passing away, he sold his house and got out of Dodge. He moved back to Seattle where he'd gone to college. He met a woman almost immediately and got engaged to her. Whoa. Yep. So he's off in Seattle. Incline Village was happy to see him go, but they were not happy to see that in their minds and the Riellas, justice had not been served. Totally. But 
The police had not forgotten about him. Their guts told him that this was not an accident, but it was really hard to prove this. And you have to consider that this guy also has a lot of money. His parents have a lot of money. And his dad is a very well-regarded, well-respected six-time district attorney in Santa Clara County. So this is going to be any prosecutor who's going to take this case on knows that it's it's a tough one. It's an uphill battle, yeah. It's an uphill battle. There's no witnesses. There's no confession. The forensic evidence they did have just wasn't overwhelming. So they decided they were going to go back and they were going to find it. So they went through the clothes that Peter was wearing that night with a fine tooth comb. And one thing that they noticed was that there were dark smudges on his shoes, his sneakers, that looked like black asphalt marks. The forensic technicians were able to use this forensic technique to basically like scrape the smudges off, melt it down, and then compare it to the exact asphalt at the scene. Okay. And it was a perfect match. So they know now that he had really come across some great big skid marks with his sneakers and the asphalt. And it looked like there was some traces of it on his pants as well. But he didn't have any of the expected organic materials, essentially, that should have been on his clothes if he had really been thrown where he said he was thrown and what happened, like certain types of plants and, I don't know, rocks and stuff like that. So they were like, okay, so this is not consistent with his story that he's saying. There's also the fact of the hat, of course, being left up there. So the detectives and later the prosecutor's theory was that Peter had steered the truck towards the guardrail purposely on the right to get the truck to go off the cliff. And he had jumped from the truck before it hit the guardrail, which resulted in him skidding with his sneakers, rolling his ankle in a way that he sustained that one small fracture to his foot. And then he got those scuffs on his shoes. He then slid down the slope about 80 feet on his behind, which is why the dirt was only on his backside. And it was why, of course, he could not explain why and how he had been ejected from the vehicle because he hadn't been. Exactly. Well, speaking of being ejected from the vehicle, physicists could find no way that he could have been thrown out of the truck and landed where he landed based on any conceivable trajectory of the truck going off the cliff. Like, okay, if he flew out the window, he wouldn't land there. If he opened the door and jumped out, he wouldn't land there. There was just no way that he could have landed where he landed based on where the truck went and where they had proof of where the truck went. So they were like, the only place he could have been ejected was before the, the truck hit the guardrail. It's the only thing that makes sense. And then again, back to that hat that's sitting at the top, an object in motion stays in motion. He said he'd been wearing that hat. Well, when it hit the guardrail and he starts going down and they're all going down, it would continue to fly down just like all the objects in the truck did. And the truck kept flying down. Basic physics. Yeah. The hat should have also landed somewhere on the cliffside and down. So they said there's just no way. This is just not matching up. Based on this evidence, his financial motivations... Yeah, some of the the sketchy shit and creeper dumb he was pulling, the cruel fight with Renette's family for financial gain, and the fact that the truck proved to have absolutely no mechanical issues, a grand jury voted to indict Peter Bergna for murder, 
In December of 2000, Peter was arrested in Seattle and brought back to Nevada for his trial, which kicked off on October 4th of 2001. The prosecutor argued the points that we just talked about, bringing Renette's family members in as witnesses, as well as numerous forensic technicians and law enforcement agents, and some of the poor women who had to talk about being groped in a hot tub in front of an audience. Yeah. The defense countered that this really was a tragic accident. Of course, Peter could not remember how he was ejected from the truck because he was traumatized. They had their own. This was expert witness going against expert witnesses. So we're not even going to get into like the real nitty gritty of each of these arguments because basically they each hired different experts to say, well, if you did it this way. And I mean, the defense even had like a graphic representation with a computer about how this could have possibly happened and where he could have fallen. Like this was just going a lot of back and forth. They also said that there was traces of cornstarch on Peter's clothes. And I guess cornstarch, it comes out of an airbag. So they were saying the cornstarch was on his clothes because he was in the vehicle when the airbag deployed. But the prosecution's expert witness said that cornstarch lingers in the air. He could be standing outside of the vehicle during the crash and get cornstarch on them. Even like law enforcement agents who check out a crash sometimes have a cornstarch on their person because it's in the air. So they were saying that proved absolutely nothing. As far as the other women went, the defense said that Peter was known as a very friendly guy, a close talker, maybe an uncomfortable hugger. Even some of his close friends said that about him. So obviously, maybe somebody got the wrong idea. I think When your hand is touching your boob, you don't have the wrong idea. I think you know that it's not what you want. Yeah, and of course, when they cross-examined that poor woman, they're like, well, why were you even in the hot tub with him? It was just like, ugh, okay, here we go. And he was saying that they could not find any evidence of an affair whatsoever, despite their best efforts. And this is one point that I do kind of concede to them, which is we have discussed a lot of scallywags. And it wouldn't surprise me that somebody who is frustrated that they're in a long distance marriage who did not elect to be in a long distance marriage and is generally unhappy and obviously a very social person would start hitting on women and be creepy. Like, that's not a shock to me. It does not necessarily mean that he did murder his wife. Yeah. It's all the other stuff. Yeah, it's, not, it's all the other stuff sounds like he murdered his wife. This isn't, this is, it just, just helps like him not have a good look. Peter's attorney made the point that he doesn't need to kill Renette for money. He has plenty of money. Well, then why is he going after his family? Her family. Exactly. Like, bro, did you even do your research? Yeah, he's going to stand to inherit millions of dollars and he makes a good living. Then why was he callously trying to take one third of the family farm away from Renette's brothers? The other thing, and now this is an interesting point. So this is one of the other things that I thought was interesting was that Peter was not an athletic guy. And so his defense attorney was trying to make the point that this would be a very tricky murder to pull off because he was putting himself in considerable danger. Even if it went down the way the prosecution is saying it went down, he'd still have to time it correctly to jump out of the vehicle at a certain point and not end up rolling off the hill himself. 
it can be done. It's not like he's incapable of walking and jumping. But it, it is an interesting way to murder somebody. I don't think we've had any other cases where somebody jumps out of the car before it goes off a cliff. Did you say there was confirmation that there was nothing malicious in her body? Like she couldn't have been sedated? Like she could have been sedated. So there was nothing to say that she had been, but there wasn't anything that I found that said that she was cleared of that. They said that they could not tell if she had been incapacitated, which I feel like they would have looked for that. Yeah, but if he gets out of the car on the top of the cliff and then makes the car go drive off the guardrail, that's not hard to do if you're not athletic. You just have to like plan it out. Yeah, I was even talking to my personal trainer about the case. And I was like, well, if you stop the car and then you just have the car go again, it's not going to break a guardrail. He's like, if you put a rock on the accelerator, it will. That's what I was thinking, like a brick. Yeah. So, yeah, because I was trying to, like, in my own head, debate whether this could truly have been just a bad accident. Not with him casually being on the asphalt on the top of the hill and, like, sliding his butt down. And also the gas cans. In the back of the truck where he, it seemed like he was hoping that it was going to catch on fire. Well, the trial had plenty of dramatic moments. First of all, a mistrial was almost called very early on because I guess the prosecutor alluded to a test and it was a reference to the polygraph, which isn't admissible in any court. And if you try to bring up a polygraph or that they had taken a lie detector test because it so often sways juries and it's not reliable science remotely, that can immediately cause a mistrial. So he had just referenced a test. And so they almost called a mistrial right there and then. But the jury didn't know what he was talking about. So the judge decided to carry on. Then they had a field trip to the cliffside. So the jury was there. And I guess Peter was also there, like walking around, looking down too. So that's really weird. And then there was a surprise witness for the prosecution who was an ex-con who had served time with Peter. And he claimed that Peter had admitted to the murder and said that the reason he drove his wife off a cliff was because she refused to have or adopt children with him. And he did not want to give her any money in the divorce. But the defense pointed out that this witness was like a career criminal, had at least five known aliases and had habitually been caught lying. So he was pretty discredited. In close, the defense argued that there just simply wasn't enough solid evidence to convict. And even if you don't like the ways that Peter was acting after his wife died, that doesn't mean he's a murderer. So reasonable doubt is the name of the defense's game at this point. After a full week of deliberation, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. No. Nine wanted to vote for conviction, and three were pretty stuck on acquittal. The jury even sent a note to the judge because the judge was saying, get it together, make a decision. We're not doing a mistrial. And they wrote a note back saying it's never going to happen because one of the jurors believed that if Peter had killed his wife, God would punish him and that this juror would not be able to live with himself if it turned out that Peter was innocent because it's not his place to judge, it's only God's. But this feels like maybe something that should have come up during jury selection. Yeah, like if you're not going to make a decision because God's the only one that can make a decision, I feel like you shouldn't be on jury person. 
Agreed. I feel like that should have been, that should have come up earlier. So just get rid of them and then do the odds number game. Yeah, but there was still two other people that wanted to acquit. So due to the deadlock, the judge had no choice. He had to declare a mistrial. Wow. But the prosecution was not going to let it go down that easily. They decided to go for a second trial, which they did so in June of 2002. There was a lot of the same testimony with the prosecution this time stressing that even if there had been an accident, let's say that something did happen mechanically, even though we know that there wasn't, Peter could have very easily steered down the mountain following the road, the way that the steering wheel was already positioned, or into the mountain to get the car to stop without going off the mountainside. The only way that the truck could have gone off the cliff was deliberately steering it that way. And Peter was never able to answer any question about why he didn't just steer away from the cliff if he thought the brakes were failing. There was a new surprise witness for the prosecution this time, and it was Peter Bergna's first wife, who nobody had heard a lot from. They were only married for about a year. So Peter's first wife claimed that Peter's affable, nice guy personality was all for show. And quote, once the door was closed, I found there was a totally different person. She said, I was very, very fearful of my physical well-being. Hmm. The defense tried to counteract that by having a ton of people from the community, even Peter's own mother, testify as character witnesses. Did you see that meme recently where it was like the serial killer's mom on a documentary, but he wouldn't hurt a fly? Like your mom in your defense is not helpful. Yeah, I I feel like it was either on the show or something. I saw somebody be like, and she was a really good witness because she was saying, oh, we have like $6 million that our kids are going to split up and inherit later on or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how good a witness is a parent? They're going to be there defending their kid. And every person or parent or child knows that. Nonetheless, this time, despite all those people saying Peter was a great guy and he loved his wife, this jury was not buying it. After three days of deliberation, the jury found Peter Bergna guilty of the murder of his wife, Renette Riella Bergna. Some of the jurors spoke to the media and said that they did not believe that he was being truthful on the 911 call because they had listened to it and they didn't believe that he was even down the side of the mountain when he called. They thought he was still on top and then just like kind of sliding his way down while he was on the phone. And we didn't really get into this, but Peter was also wearing a lot of layers that night. Now, this was another thing that I didn't think was necessarily a smoking gun because it's the desert. You know how even in the summer, the desert gets cold. And so he was wearing like pants, socks, sneakers, a shirt, like a windbreaker over everything. And the prosecution had made a point that he was wearing all these layers because he knew he was going to be jumping out of the car. And so he wanted to cushion his blow or protect his skin somehow. I didn't necessarily know if I felt that way, so I didn't really mention it, but I guess it did make an impact on the jury, specifically that he had gloves on, which is a little weird, and that they did not think that somebody would be smoking a cigar with gloves on because that's odd, and he said he was smoking a cigar, and that's why the window was open. (sighs) Yeah, it's weird. I mean, when you said he was smoking a cigar at all, I thought it was weird, but that's just me. 
Yeah. And also one of Renette's brothers said that they very frequently smoked cigars in the home when they were having holidays and the such, and that Renette had never, ever complained about the smell of smoke. They said at most she would be like, you guys, you shouldn't be doing that. You're going to get cancer. But like she never complained about the smoke herself or, be, or she didn't like the smell or whatever. So those were a couple of things that stood out to the jury and why they chose to convict. Well, a shocked Peter Bergner. I really think he thought he was going to be acquitted. Of course. Yeah. He was sentenced to life in prison with parole possible after 20 years. Wow. We're getting up there, aren't we? We're just about there. Peter's attorneys appealed. They wanted to do a third trial. They said that there was already so much public opinion against Peter by the time the second trial occurred that no one could be fair because they had wanted to move the trial, I think, to Vegas. It had been denied. So they're like, oh, he didn't get a fair trial. And also, apparently, one of the jurors was friendly with some guy who ended up in jail with Peter later on. And this guy who maybe had dated this girl or something said that she smoked pot during the trial as a juror. So he should get a new trial because... Are you not allowed to smoke pot when you go home? I don't know. Come on. He said that like he gave her a ride home and she smoked marijuana with him or something. Yeah. Of like, so you can't have a drink or smoke weed when you're a juror. Apparently not. Well, actually, apparently, sure. Why not? Because... The court said, no, we're upholding the conviction. There's no grounds here that say that if things had gone differently or he had been in a different area, that things would have changed. They didn't feel like there was enough evidence that public outcry was against him. So then his attorneys appealed that decision in the Nevada Supreme Court, who in December 2004 said, no dice, Peter, you're staying in prison. Conviction holds. Peter was also required to repay the Riellas the blood money that they had paid him for Renette's portion of the family farm. So I'm really glad they got that back. Me too. So Peter is now 69 years old, and he remains behind bars in Northern Nevada Correctional Center. But I think he should be up for parole pretty soon. I didn't see when officially he's up for parole. He has a very cheery mugshot. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's very smiley. And Michael Fleeman did say that he was doing some good work in prison. He was teaching some inmates English as a second language, it sounds like. So, I mean, they should just keep him in there so he can keep doing that. <laughs> he should keep doing the good works in there. Dominic Dunn did not, who, by the way, he is the um, father of a murder victim, a very sad case as well. Dominic Dunn did not mince his words at the end of his episode. He said that Peter was a pompous art patron and wine snob who is now drinking bad lemonade out of a plastic cup, which shows that there is some justice in this world after all. So, Andy, I don't think I have to ask you twice if you think he did it or not. No. <laughs> in my eyes, he definitely did. Way too much fishy shit. A lot of orange flags turning into red flags. In conclusion, if you are going to murder your wife in a spectacularly bizarre way because you want companionship, maybe you should try to keep it in your pants for at least a few months after you've killed her. Yeah, or keep it in your pants always for people who don't want to see what's in your pants. Yeah, that's a good idea. Also, enough about him. Let's talk about Renette and maybe... Everyone should follow their dreams and what they want to do and travel and 
go be a tour guide and do your thing. Ugh, be like Renette. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye, Bye. guys. <laughs>